Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. As we begin this morning, I want you to contemplate. I want you to think about what you believe to be God's greatest hope for your life. What does God really hope for you? What does God desire for your life? What is, as your Heavenly Father, what is His deepest want for you? There's a lot of answers, I'm sure, that you might be coming up with. Some of them may be good, some of them not so great. I'm not convinced everybody is uh, sold on the idea that God wants what is best for us, but I'm assuming that amongst this crowd that we have some belief that God wants what is best for us. What, what do you believe God really hopes and wants for your life? Maybe he wants you to be happy. That's a good goal. Maybe God wants for you to have a good life. Maybe we can go a little bit deeper and maybe you're thinking, well, God wants us to have joy and peace, even if some circumstances are difficult. Maybe you're thinking of a more religious type answer, like God's goal for me is to make it to heaven or that I would do his will and follow his ways. All of those answers are good things. And yes, your heavenly father wants those to be true. But those things that I just described, like happiness, a good life, Joy, peace, make it to heaven, follow God's ways, be attached to his will, are all things that are actually fruit or the results of what he wants really for you at the core. You see, the root of what God really wants for your life right now, the the one thing that is at the center that will produce all of those other things, the root is transformation change real deep hard yet overwhelmingly rewarding change and we know this about ourselves human beings know this we know the state that we currently exist in is not a perfected state and so we as humans whether we are religious or not religious are pursuing to be a better version of ourselves we're all doing this And that's exactly what God wants for you. But God doesn't just want change for you. He isn't just a heavenly audience watching down on earth, rooting for you and cheering for you, saying, man, I really hope that he or she gets their life together and changes and becomes what they can be, like he's some sort of divine inspiration poster in a school building somewhere. That's not who God is. God is actually one who wants this for you but can make it happen can make it happen with certainty. Isaiah is our example this morning about how grace can change us. Chapter 6 is actually, technically, chapter 1 in this book. Isaiah chapter 1 through 5 is the theological face of what the story of the whole book is going to be about. But Isaiah chapter 6 is really chronologically the beginning of the book because it's when God calls Isaiah into his prophetic ministry. And Isaiah is being called into ministry, and, it's a, and, and Isaiah chapter 6 is a picture of someone's life being changed, being transformed 
by grace. Isaiah's steps are ones that you and I must understand, but not just understand, they're ones that you and I have to experience. And none of these steps can actually be skipped if what we actually experience in life is true transformation and true change. And so if you're here this morning, you've come this morning and you have some sense, some hunger, some thirst to grow, to change, there's that gnawing inside of you that knows that, you know, I get frustrated with my, myself, I want to be better, I want to be different. You're in the right place at the right time because Isaiah is a model of how change really happens. Now, I'm not promising that it's easy, but I'm, some, I'm promising that it works. So let's look into how we are transformed by God's grace. Number one, transformation, real, genuine transformation begins with crisis, curveball there right it begins with crisis look in chapter one or chapter six verse one the very beginning of the phrase isaiah anchors his personal story with a historical event he says there's this big moment in Ju jerusalem's history when king uzziah dies he says in the year that king uzziah died he then goes on to tell his personal story now, if you don't know much about King Uzziah, let me try to bring you quickly up to speed. Uzziah was mostly a good king, godly man. Uh, Jerusalem saw him as a blessing to the people. Later in his life, he wrestled with some pride, and he enter, entered into a curse of uh, leprosy. But for the most part, he was a very good king. The nation of Judea prospered under his reign for 52 years. He restored Judea in the, like in the days of David and Solomon. They were wise, they were intelligent, they were prosperous, they, were, um, they, they had all kinds of inventions going on. He had raised the military to be dominant and powerful. Judea under the reign of Uzziah was doing quite well. The Jews were safe and secure. The Jews were happy and comfortable. They were prosperous people. And they looked to Uzziah on the throne as a man who gave them great blessing from God, and they felt safe and secure. But like their king, the, Jew, the Jews grew proud and indifferent toward God in their prosperity. They had gratitude that faded away to nothing, and their entitlement began to swell they lost all reverence for who God was. And the moment Uzziah dies, the nation is in crisis. And see, crisis precedes transformation always. Because there is actually no need for us to change as human beings if there isn't a problem that we've got to deal with. If everything is fine and I'm happy and everything's working, rarely do we ever change. But when crisis enters our lives and we have questions and we wonder what we're going to do, that's when real change can begin. Crisis is caused by usually one of two things. The first one is an internal kind of crisis. This kind of crisis is born out of our bad choices and destructive habits. Some of you may have entered into this kind of life crisis where you have made poor choices and bad decisions that have built bad habits that have put you into a life much like the prodigal son in Luke 15 who woke up, was in the pig pen, had no money and no food, and it says he came to his senses. His decisions put his life in crisis. Some of you may be in that situation. The other way is external 
Something actually happens to you. So you're going along your merry way and life is fine and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and you experience something outside of you like a job loss or the death of a loved one or the betrayal by a friend. Or maybe some of you just move away to college and you're like, I've never done this before and I kind of feel like I'm in crisis. Whatever it is, something externally has changed and now you're scared to death. What am I going to do? Either way internal or external, it puts you into what psychologists call an existential crisis. Have you heard of an existential crisis? All that means is this. It just means you're starting to ask yourself the really hard questions about life. Things like, what am I on earth for? Does my life have meaning? Is what I'm doing the right thing? Is this purposeful? Is this what I should be doing? When you hit moments like that where you're asking those questions, you're coming out of your existence and saying, does my existence matter? And crisis puts you into that moment. You see, crisis is actually not just going through a hard time. People go through hard times all the time and they don't enter into crisis. Crisis is the moment that you're in a hard time and you start to care about, or pardon me, crisis is the moment when you're in a hard time and what you care about is under attack. You see, this is why personal crisis doesn't happen every time something bad happens. You can see something bad happen, like a tragedy can happen in another city or another state. A tragedy can happen in a different nation or something terrible or bad. And it doesn't always affect personally what matters to you. You could go through something difficult that what someone else would see as a crisis that to you just doesn't really matter that much. You don't enter into crisis because what you care about most is not really facing much challenge. It's only when what matters most to us is in danger that we enter into crisis. This is what Isaiah was going through. Isaiah is going to confess in just a moment that he, like the rest of the nation, felt safe and secure, felt happy and proud because Uzziah was his king, not God. And he's going to confess that. And the moment he loses Uzziah as king, he enters into crisis. You see, the reason crisis always precedes transformation is because the crisis reveals what your idols are. The things that you love and treasure, the things that you need and depend upon, the things that you've built your life on and trust in, when those things begin to crumble, your world begins to crumble and you go into crisis. Now, the main question when you enter crisis is this. It is not, what should I do? But the question is, what should I see? What do I see right now? And that's the second point. Number one, transformation begins with crisis. Number two, transformation continues with clarity. Now look what happens to Isaiah in verse one. Uzziah dies and Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now this is not just random historical evidence. Isaiah is purposefully telling you something about his story. A great king that he trusted in for his life, for security and happiness, has now died. And now he's seeing another king. Uzziah now died, who was the king that I trusted in. And now I see God, the Lord, sitting on a throne. His crisis was losing a king that he trusted in. And now he sees a different one. But this one is better. He sees the Lord on his throne. And you see, God on the throne is the ultimate reality of the universe. Whether you believe that or not, whether you accept that or not, 
whether that has impact on your life or not, God on the throne is the central truth of all human existence. It is the reality that brought this world into existence. It is the reality that Satan plots against. It is the reality that sinners reject. It is the reality of God on the throne that Jesus submitted to. And it is the reality that saints must return to. God on the throne. And it is the answer to every single crisis. Everyone. God on the throne. And here's what Isaiah sees in the midst of his crisis. His world has been turned upside down. He doesn't know what to do. He sees God on the throne, and it reminds him of three things. First of all, it reminds him of stability. Now, in this moment, you know, the the throne is going to be passed on from Uzziah to his son, and they don't know how life's going to go. There's a lot of um, unanswered questions. And Isaiah seeing God on the throne provides stability. You notice it says that God is seated. God is calm. He's not rushing around. He's not screaming at his servants. He's not saying, we've got a problem. What are we going to do? God's sitting on his throne. He's calm. He's in control. God's reaction to Isaiah's crisis in this moment, sitting and calm, is how God reacts to all of our crisis. He's in control. He knows. He's calm. He also sees God as present. It says the train of God's robe fills the entire temple. There's not one man, there's not one king in his presence that can fill the entire temple. And when Isaiah is there that day in the temple and looks up and he sees God on the throne and the train of his robe filling the entire temple, what it's telling him is not only is he calm and in control, God, but he's also present everywhere. You see, there's no place that you can go That God is not present and God is not in control. So whatever crisis you're facing, lift your eyes and see this reality. Number two, Isaiah also learns that God has authority, ultimate authority. It says that he is high and lifted up. He's above all other thrones. Uzziah's throne was great. It was high. It was powerful. But God's throne is much higher. It's transcendent. His authority is not just a powerful authority, like when I speak, people do what I say, although that's true. God's authority is also an expert authority. He sees God as ultimately wise, knowing all things, the one to whom we should go for everything. So he knows that God knows what is best for all things in all circumstances. There is no other God above him. There's no other God that has the answers that he has and the power that he has. So Isaiah is there in the temple seeing a God of all power and all authority in control, high above any other God that you could turn to. So he sees a God of stability, a God of authority, but he also sees a God of superiority, high and lifted up. And there's this group of people, this group of beings, pardon me, that are around God. They're called seraphim. In Jewish tradition, these are the highest rank of all angelic beings. Seraphim just literally means burning ones, those that are on fire, pure, sinless, ready at the call of God to serve whatever he needs. And what you see about God in relation to these seraphim are a few things. First of all, God's superiority because they are sinless, yet they're still covering themselves in front of God. They have such a reverence for who he is that they cover themselves even though they themselves are sinless. They cry out to each other this phrase, holy, holy, holy. They repeat it three times. 
not just for linguistic emphasis, like, hey, don't you forget he's holy, but what they're trying to do is declare something that God is unlike any other being. God is greater, mightier, wiser than any other being that we could ever imagine. He's holy, holy, holy. They're declaring that there is none like him. You see, God is not just bigger and nicer than you. He is altogether different. And so that means that his wisdom, his vision, his answers, his ability are beyond anything that you and I could comprehend. So here's the question. What in life has you so worried? What in life has you in a crisis that you're so twisted up about? What are you so consumed with? What are you so afraid of? What are you so angry about? What shuts you down in life? What has put you into crisis? Seeing God clearly on the throne as unlike any other God in the universe is the key that unlocks your life changing because he is greater than any crisis you can be in. And the question is, have you gone to him? That's what Isaiah does. Number three, transformation digs in with real cleansing. Real cleansing. Look in verse five. When Isaiah is there standing, seeing this event happen, he says some things. In verse 5, he says, Woe to me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, we have a problem. When we become aware of God's glory and our life being lived in his presence, we have a challenge. Because we not only see God in all of his glory for who he is, But because of God, we now finally see who we are, really who we are. And Isaiah shows us that this external problem, he's lost a king, has now turned into an internal problem. God, in your presence, I am not worthy. His own sinfulness makes him do two things. First of all, he is moved to confession. Confession. Notice what Isaiah says. He says, woe to me, woe to me. Meaning, this is bad. This is a judgment. That word woe is a judgment. He's saying, I deserve to be judged in your presence. When I see this, your glory, your power, your authority, and the seraphim worshiping you, and I'm in your presence now, I deserve to be judged. Woe to me. And he has two things to say about it. Number one, he says, I'm lost. Here's what his confession is. Literally, he says, I'm brought to silence. I have no answer for this who I am and what I am and what I've become in my sinfulness, I have no way of solving this. God, I am lost. Woe is me. I have no answer. I can't fix this. And then he says, number two, I have unclean lips. I think it's really important that Isaiah acknowledges the specific sin that he recognizes in God's presence. He doesn't just generically say, I'm unworthy of you, God. He doesn't just say the seraphim are greater than me and I have fallen short so I'm just a sinner, please forgive me. He stands in God's presence and he knows that his own very lips are unclean. Do you see what Isaiah is confessing? I'm watching these beings, seraphim, live in light of your reality and I'm realizing that I've never worshipped like they worship. I've never declared your glory like they're declaring your glory. I've never dedicated myself wholly to you like they have. My lips, which have worshipped you my whole life, are vile and unclean. And he bows his head in personal confession. It's important also to notice that his confession is personal. 
Those around him, he says the nation around me, most likely were, quote-unquote, in our view, worse than him. Most likely they lived more sinful lives than he did. And all Isaiah can see in light of God's presence is his sin. Now this is a good test for you. You see, if you live in light of God's reality, you will have no room to be the judge of other people's sin. You just won't. When you live in light of God's reality and his light of his glory, it leaves you with personal confession, not others' criticism. That's what it does to us. And so if you find yourself constantly willing to judge other people and unaware of your own ways that you constantly need repentance, you might not be living in light of God's reality. You just might not be. The space to be a judge of others and not aware of your own sin is the space where we live outside of God's reality and we think we're God ourselves. Isaiah actually sees himself in unity with his people. He says, I'm like them, God. And here's what happens, and this is vital, so if you zero in with me right now, this is key. When Isaiah, in the presence of God, is brought to humility to confess his sin, then and only then can he have the second thing, which is real conversion. Do you see what happens in verse 6? One of the seraphim flies to Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he has in tongs. And he touches Isaiah's lips, and he says, you're now clean. Guilt is gone. Sin is atoned for. You see, he's actually converted because he's willing to confess. Literally changed. Not just a religious ceremony, but Isaiah's constitutional being is now changed. Something is different about him. The process goes like this. God's servant flies to him that's grace with a gift that comes from the altar which was where sacrifice to god is offered and he touches only that which isaiah confesses you ever wonder why sin lingers so long in your life why you just can't kick it out maybe because we're not owning it the way we need to own it god's servant with god's healing power can only touch what we confess unconfessed sin stays in us it's hidden and david cried out saying his own very bones in his body were decaying when he kept his sin inside and tried to hide it from god but because isaiah was willing to confess he was willing to be healed and the results are this he says your guilt is gone that means the punishment that you deserve is now taken away you are no longer under condemnation or the judgment that you deserve but also he says your sin is atoned for. These are two different things. The guilt that you deserve because you sinned is now not going to be put on you. But he also says the sin that you've committed is atoned for. That means what God sees in us as offensive, God no longer sees. You see, grace solves both your guilt problem and your shame problem. Grace solves the external part of us that makes us guilty, deserving of punishment, but it also solves the shame problem that makes us identity broken. The order is important. Without honesty of your sin, you cannot have that part healed of you. What you hide will continue to stay broken. You see, Isaiah doesn't just have his destiny changed in this encounter with God, like he's going to get to go to heaven. He also has his identity changed, who he is. God no longer sees Isaiah as a man of unclean lips. He sees him as a man who is healed and ready for mission. That's the last part of our sermon this morning. Transformation starts with crisis. 
continues with clarity of seeing who God is, digs in with confession and then cleansing, but it really is unleashed when you're commissioned to serve God. Godly commission takes two things. First of all, it takes a willingness of heart, uh, being aware of the need that God has in the world. Isaiah sees it, he hears about the need, and when you and I are transformed by grace, we become aware of ways in which God's work needs to be done in this world. We see needs, we see uh, hurt, we see problems, we become sensitive to responding to that. And Isaiah here is motivated by the grace that he has received, and it's powerful for you to realize this. Christian service, serving God, must be motivated by grace and not our guilt. Isaiah's guilt is gone in the preceding verse. If you see grace on the other side of your service, meaning if grace is the carrot, not the stick, if grace is on the other side of your service, you will always be an employee and never a friend. Because in that case, if grace is on the other side of your service, you are a wage earner. You are a laborer in the sense that you're an employee, not a friend. You don't know the Father's will. But when grace is on this side, when it is what drives you, you become unified with the Father. And it motivates you to serve. You become his friend. That changes your heart into a servant. You know there's a major difference between doing acts of service and being a servant? There's a major difference between those two, and a lot of people just do acts of service but aren't really servants. Doing acts of service are held this way. Number one, you still control when and where you do it. You control if you're going to or if you're not. You decide who gets, the, who gets to be the recipient of your service and who doesn't, but a servant is available when, where, and who God sends them to. And grace makes us a servant, not just a person trying to do acts of service to earn it. Number two, Isaiah had an assignment from God. You notice that God took him. He he had unclean lips. God washed his lips, made them clean, and then used his lips in service. Born out of the wounds that he experienced, God used him. He gave him a difficult task. He said, I want you to go preach a message that's going to harden people's hearts. It's going to take endurance. You're going to have to have a soft heart. But ultimately, look down at verse 13. You're going to have to have hope. The final part of this in verse 13 says this. After Isaiah asks, how long will I have to do this, God? He says, though a tenth remain in it, Israel, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You see, Isaiah had a hope. He knew that there was going to be this holy seed that was going to come out of Judea and redeem not just his people, but the world. And that hope gave him the energy to work in that ministry that he was given. And so the question this morning might be this. Have you hit a crisis? I'm guessing most of you have hit some kind of crisis yet. Maybe not all the way, but most of you have. And maybe you've hit more than one. And the question is, what do you see when you hit crisis? What do you look for? Was it solved for you? Do you have more of the same where you just control the own problems and you answer your own questions? Or have you seen the glory of God on his throne as your only answer? And what did his glory do to you? Did it leave you aware of your sin? Put you in shame because you haven't measured up? And has God's grace made itself to you yet so that you can be healed and cleansed of that sin and ultimately commissioned to serve in his ministry? You see... God has sent not just a seraphim 
to go to an altar to grab a coal, but he sent his own special servant, Jesus Christ, to do something greater than any seraphim could do. He was the one who left the throne of heaven, the presence of God, to come to this earth. And he didn't just grab a gift, a coal from the altar. This being, this special being, Jesus, laid himself on the altar. And he became the very thing that cleanses us by his own blood. And he gave us that blood to be grace that cleanses us, changes us, and commissions us to become transformed people in this world, to really make a difference. So if we're going to come to him and see everything that's glorious about him, we'll finally be able to find the eternal change in our life that we're looking for. And if you haven't yet really latched on to, anchored into how to change in your life, I hope that you'll see what Isaiah went through and be willing to do the very same thing. Come and see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Get to know him and let us connect you to him and you'll really start to change. Let's stand and sing.